Right, there are some books about grace. I'm going to speak about grace. We've been in a worship time uh, where we sang about grace. In fact, I thought to myself, my sermon is being sung right before my very eyes and ears. And uh, it was great. So wonderful. Wasn't it wonderful to be in the Lord's presence this morning? Perhaps the Perhaps the uh, simplest book on grace that you can read is called Enjoying the Grace of God, Too Good to Be True by Terry Virgo, Enjoying the Grace of God. So it's, a, it's an easy read. Look, it's big print on small pages. So it's an easy read, but it will open your eyes to the simplicity and profoundness of the grace of God. So that's on the bookstore. Enjoying God's Grace. From the Inside Out, A Grace-Filled Life by Mike Betts is a more comprehensive look at the doctrine of grace and how it affects the way you live. How it affects not just how you begin your Christian life, but how you go on. And similarly to that, The Discipline of Grace by Jerry Bridges also looks at the foundations of grace in salvation, but also how it works out in practice in day-to-day life. So I recommend all three of those. Jackie gave me another one that I haven't looked at, so I can't recommend it. There's also God's Lavish Grace by Terry. Yes, we haven't got that on the bookstore at the moment. God's Lavish Grace. Okay. Would you like to turn to Galatians? And Galatians chapter 1, and let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're in awe of you and what you have just done in our presence. That you would come and stir us to such wonderful, intimate worship and joyous praise. I hardly feel worthy, Lord, to talk right now. But Lord, will you take these words and Spirit of God, come. Lord, may we, may we go to our tea and coffee with hearts full of thankfulness. Amen. Okay, so we're talking about grace, and uh, not surprisingly for some of you, I suppose, it is that we turn to Galatians, others might have expected us to turn to Ephesians, uh, but we've looked at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, in detail in recent weeks, and so therefore I thought I, I need to base what I say on something other than Ephesians, and so we're looking in Galatians, where Paul faces these difficulties uh, with the Galatian churches where they have left the gospel of grace and turned back to legalism. The definition of grace, um, you know, the, what's it called? An acronym. acronym, that's the one. It's like, a, it's like an acro. Yeah? You, an acro is a, is a support for a, for a beam across. It's a steel thing you screw up 
tight until it holds it. Really. Okay? It's actually quite a good illustration, that. Grace. Oh, wow, yes. Grace. The gospel of grace will go into a firm foundation for you and hold your whole life firmly. All your life. Every day. The rest of your life. If you get this gospel of grace in, you've got an acro for the rest of your life. Solid. But that's not what I was going to say. (laughs) So the acronym is God's Riches at Christ's Expense. This is grace that God gives us from his hand all his riches. And how he's able to do that is because Jesus Christ has paid it all. The cost, the requirement of God's justice is met by Jesus Christ, not by you. It's so simple. It's so amazingly simple. Everything for you that you need for the rest of your life and into eternity. Paid for. Absolutely. Completely. Utterly paid for. No more to pay. Jesus has paid it all. How simple is that? And yet how difficult it has been for humanity to grasp it and to live in it. It seems to be something in us that bends us towards the desire to do something. I must do something. We're sort of bent towards this desire as as humanity and, and God's grace has come to smash that. So that we don't do. We receive. And we receive without feeling guilty about receiving. Without feeling we must repay in some way. Although there's an element of that in how we live our lives. We are saying to God, I give you my life. But it is not strictly part of the doctrine of grace. He's done it all, and we cannot repay. The sum is too vast. So, I've been uh, reading again a tremendous uh, book by a a guy with a very strange name, Longnecker. (laughs) Longnecker. It's a great book by Long Necker. 
And, uh, but it's, it's, he's, he's um, an intellectual theologian, and so, and he's also, I think, at Cambridge rather than Oxford, which makes him weird. Um, but then, anyway, uh, there is this, there is this, uh, I'm going to quote twice, once at the beginning and once at the end, what I say. This is my quote for the beginning, okay? So it's in intellectual language. And we're going to unpack it and say, wow, okay? Almost Bible wow, but not quite, because it's not the Bible. Okay? He says this, Divine sovereignty has penetrated an age of evil. Just let those words swing around your head for a minute. Divine sovereignty has penetrated an age of evil. Provided a means of release from lesser forces. And established a sphere of unprecedented access to God. And multiracial association. There's so much packed in there. You could preach on this. But let's just let those words come in again. Established a sphere of unprecedented access to God. And multiracial association. So today I want to talk about this gospel of grace that gives us this unprecedented unprecedented access that we've been singing about. Three things. Only one gospel. Only one relationship. And only one life. Only one gospel. Galatians 1, verse 6. Paul says this to the Galatians, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. There isn't another one. This is what Paul is saying. You, you, I'm astonished, he says, you are turning away from the only gospel. Already, wasn't long ago <clears throat> that you got saved and already you're turning away to another gospel. And then verses 15 to 17. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. This is Paul's experience of the gospel. There is one gospel, he says. There is no other. You see, the Pharisees, there's, there's a debate now amongst theologians and historians. There's a debate going on. 
It's been going on for some years, and it's still going on, and it'll probably go on forevermore, amen. But the debate is this. They're not sure whether the Pharisees were making people keep the law in such a rigid, rigid way, in such a burdensome way, in such a extraordinarily nitpicking way. They weren't, no one's sure whether this passion of the Pharisees to keep this law was so that God might be pleased with them and that God might therefore finally fulfill the totality of his covenant and release them from the Roman authority into freedom as a nation. Or whether the Pharisees kept this nitpicking thing and this incredible burdensome law on people in order that people might actually find salvation through law keeping. In case you're interested, these two things, one's called the Lutheran view and one's called the new perspective. In case you're interested. But for our purposes... It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Galatians seems to imply some of the way through that it's about law-keeping for salvation. But it doesn't matter because law-keeping doesn't do anything. Only grace. It's only grace. You can keep laws until you are blue in the face, and you probably will be. It makes no difference. We'll get to that in a minute. And so there's only one gospel, and adding works, Paul says, is turning your back on this gospel of grace. Turning your back... Well, let's see what he says. So quickly, verse 6, read this carefully, so quickly, deserting him... See, Paul doesn't make it theological and such like. He's he's saying, this is personal. This is very personal. If you start living your life by laws instead of receiving the grace of God, you are turning away like a deserter in an army. You're a traitor and a treasoner. It's like you've taken your British passport and you've gone to Syria and ISIS. You can't do it. You have removed yourself. It's personal. You've deserted him. No wonder Paul is angry about this. No wonder he's stirred about this. No wonder he wants them to repent and get back to the freedom of the gospel of grace. See, Paul had an experience of this gospel of grace that stuns us when we read it. It's an extraordinary story. Will you turn with me to Acts chapter 26? Acts chapter 26. I can hear some pages turning, but not a lot of fingers pressing buttons. Okay, so Acts chapter 26. Let's see what Paul's experience was. Verse 12. 
And this connection, that is the connection of persecuting Christians. In this connection, the connection was, I want to kill some Christians. Let me get some Christians. I want them killed. I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we'd all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's personal. It's personal. Christianity is a personal religion. It's a personal relationship. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Oh, imagine. Just imagine. You've grown up in this religion. You're a Pharisee of Pharisees. You're the one persecuting the Christians. You're the one with zealous, zealousness for what you see as the truth. And suddenly, boom! You are face to face with the one you denied. You are face to face with the one whose followers you have killed. You are face to face with the one who you said was not the Messiah, who you said was not the Saviour, who you said was not anybody of any worth whatsoever, suddenly in the middle of this journey, bang! Unexpected. Unasked for. Right bang into the middle of his life. Jesus comes and reveals himself and says, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. What? No wonder he's on the floor like this. But Jesus says, But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you've seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Well, it's quite a long section for Jesus uh, to say to him, for us to analyse right now, but Look at what he says. I've appeared to you for this purpose. Paul never forgot 
that he was saved and turned around to face a completely different direction because it was the purpose of God for his life. That God had planned it. That this, for him, sudden, unexpected, shocking intervention of God into his life, this sudden moment of revelation was something that God had planned from before he was even born. This is grace. Perhaps uh, for you, maybe a little bit of an unusual way of looking at grace, but this is grace. God comes and says, I'm Jesus, whom you have ignored or lived against or fought against. I'm Jesus, the one your culture has dismissed as irrelevant. The one that you maybe have been brought up to dismiss and laugh at. Suddenly, boom, in the middle of someone's life, Jesus comes and says, look, the truth. And opens our mind and opens our heart to the truth. And Paul had his mind and heart blasted open to the truth. And he was totally changed. Utterly different. Because the grace of God had come. And set him free, it says here, from your people and from the Gentiles. What's that mean? It's set him free from the milieu in which he lived, from the cultures in which he lived. Set him free to see above and beyond and see the truth so that he could go back into those situations and proclaim (coughs) Jesus is alive. He is the Redeemer and he saved me freely. Paul could even say, gosh, I didn't even ask for it. And so there it is then in Galatians where he sums up, and he sums up like this, the pattern is, verses 15 to 17, the pattern that Paul is looking for in the grace of God in other people as well as himself, this is what he's looking for, that we are set apart before birth. In other words, that we've been chosen before the foundation of the world, as he puts in Ephesians chapter 1. This is it. We're set apart before birth. It's not just Paul. Paul's not just talking about himself here. He's talking about all of us who know the grace of God. God chose you, knows you by name, knows, knows you exactly who you are, knows who your parents are, knows who you were born with, knows who your siblings are, knows your hairs on your head. He knows everything about you. There is nothing withheld from him. He knows the whole thing because he's planned it from the beginning. For me, he planned it. That there would come a day in August 1959 when he would intervene into my life. From before I was born. And the same is true for you. If you've made that discovery of Jesus and his grace, your discovery is a pre-planned event by the King of Kings. What a privilege.
How awesome is that? That you know Jesus because Jesus decided to know you. Called by the grace of God in the midst of life, Paul says, Jesus revealed. See, this is, uh, this is why, what this church stands for. We stand for this, that Jesus reveals himself to people, that we are in this grace of God, that it's God's intervention, that it's God's initiative. He comes to us and reveals himself. People have different ways in. From our perspective, it looks, you know, different. You hear testimonies of this way and testimonies of that way and testimonies of how I met God, testimonies of how I've made a decision to come to Christ. All these things are all from our side of the fence. From his side of the fence, he comes. When you see it his way, you see that your history has been shaped so that you meet the King of Kings. You're that important to the Lord. That he would mould history so that you, because you are so loved and so important to him, that you would know this salvation. And Paul knew it. Never got over it. I, the chief of sinners, he said. Me, who persecuted Christians. Loved by God? How can that be? And yet it's true. And you can look at your life and you can think, oh, the things I've said and done, how can God possibly, God was after you? Because he loves you. God reached out to you because he loves you. You are so important to him, he defined history to make sure you became a Christian. And then was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. There was a plan. So there's one gospel and there's one plan. And going on in Galatians, turn to chapter 3 now, there's only one relationship There's only one relationship. Verse uh, 1 of chapter (coughs) 3. Oh foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. How did you receive all this goodness? all this stuff from God. How did you receive it? Well, you received it through the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God who touched your life. It's the Spirit of God who made you anew. It's the Spirit of God who took your old self 
and made it new, a new creation. How did you receive? Were you received by the Spirit? You didn't receive by keeping works of law. You didn't receive it by being a good boy or a good girl. You didn't receive it because you helped old ladies across the road. Or deliberately rode into them on your pedal bike. Neither of these events matters. Well, they do. You know what I mean. You receive by the Spirit. It's not what you do. It's who you are. Loved of God. And then, and then, verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you, works miracle among you, do so by works of the law? You know, Paul was doing a bit of a sort of thing with the Galatians. You know, you see, you see people healed. We pray for someone and they're healed. Is that a work of law? Is that how it works, you know? Is there a law about it? If I say this and say that, if I do this and do that, I'll twist God's arm behind his back, if he has one, until he says, okay, okay, I'll do it. No. You receive the healing because God loves you. And he stimulates someone through the Spirit to pray for you. It's through the Spirit. And it's the Spirit's power. Okay? Paul's amazed, amazed at it. How can you start with success and ditch it? You know, it's a bit like a company like Google or something. You know, they have an idea. And they start with this idea. And boom, it's very successful. Suddenly everyone's doing it. Everyone wants a, a bite of the cherry. Google's shares rise. And Google will say, well, that was, a, that was a good start, wasn't it? Let's do something else then. Let's see what else we can do. Let's try something else. Let's do something totally different. Paul's saying, how can you start in the spirit and then go on in Christian life, trying it to do it some different way. You started in the Spirit and it was successful. Didn't, didn't you see what God did amongst you? Didn't you see what God was doing through the Spirit in your life, in, in other people's lives around you? Didn't you see all that stuff? Surely you saw all that stuff. How did it happen? Because you wore a tie on Sunday? Because you wore shorts on Sunday when it was sunny. No, because the Spirit of God did these things for you. Because he loves you. All other debates are irrelevant. There's only one thing that counts. And he says this in chapter 6, verse 15. The only thing that matters 
is a new creation. You see, circumcision, not circumcision. You know, law keepers, not law keepers. What? What, what are we talking about here? Law keepers, not law keepers. You know, let's have a fight between law keepers and not law keepers. No! It's irrelevant. Because it's all about a new creation by the Holy Spirit in your life. Which is where you get to the third point. Only one life. Did you know you only have one life? How many lives do cats have? There's only one life. Why do cats always get it, you know, in the neck? Do you know why that is? They get, you know, you can't swing a cat in this room. What do you want to swing a cat? I mean, what, why do cats always get it in the neck? That's a, very strange. Only one life. Chapter 5. Let's turn to chapter 5 of Galatians. Only one life. I'm going to pick out a few verses as we go through this chapter. Just pick out a few, and then uh, we'll look at this final point. Verse 1. Just, just let these verses flow together in your head, okay? Because there's a lot of stuff in chapter 5. It's a great chapter to read. Read it slowly. Read it carefully. Let, get it into you at some other time. But right now, just let this flow of verses that I pick out feed your head. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So the first thing to notice is that this life that we're now given is free. It's amazing, isn't it? You can go down to Hatfield Market and you can say to someone, you can have a completely new life and it's free. You don't have to pay a thing. I can offer you not 25% off, not 33% off, not even 50% off. This is 100% off. This is free. And people will say to you, are you some religious nut? No, thanks. They will, won't they? Freshers, walking through Freshers Fair. You know? One says to another, cure this tent's full of churches. As if, oh my word, let's get out of here. You, you know, it's just, it's, wow, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? We have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? That's what Peter said to Jesus. You have the words of eternal life. Where else do we go? There is no other answer to the pain of mankind. There is only one answer. This one gospel, the gospel of grace. It's free. It's free. 
You don't need to work for it. You don't have to work for it. It's free. Someone else has paid the price. Jesus was crucified for you. He took your penalty and it's free to you. New life. It's free for you. Life in this new relationship with God. It's free. Conscience renewed. Guilt gone. The tyranny of laws, religious laws, dealt with, finished. It's free. Stand, therefore. Don't submit again to the old stuff. Stand, therefore. Paul is amazed. It's freedom. You've been set free. You lifted me up from the miry clay, we sang. You set me free. I mean, what other words do we need, you know? What, how, how, I, I was going to look it up in the thesaurus and forgot. Free. See what other words there were for free. You might like to think of some now. I can't. I'm standing here thinking, Lord, give me another word for free right now. But I can't think of it. It's free. <laughs> yes, Isaiah 50. Yeah. Uh, come, all you who thirst. Without price. There's no price label. We don't offer new life and say, come to Jesus. There's new life in Jesus. And by the way, and if you want easy terms, no, it's free. Stand firm, therefore, in this freedom. You know, this, what this freedom gives us is amazing. Like that wonderful song Sam sang, the temple's curtain torn from top to bottom so that we can walk in guilt-free, freely. Isn't that wonderful? 24-hour access. There's lots of companies who like to advertise their 24-hour access. You can have 24-hour access to all sorts of things. But what a prize is this? 24-hour access to the King of Kings. No one else offers anything remotely approaching it. In fact, it's an insult to even think about these other things. It's an insult to Jesus to think about these other things, have any comparative value to new life lived with him. 24 hours. I went to this conference, and many of you have heard me talk about this story, but I'm going to tell it again for those who haven't. So if you've heard this already, I'm sorry. Please do not shout at me or wave your hand and say, excuse me, shut up, you know, or anything. <laughs> you, know, just, you know, just be quiet. Laugh at the appropriate point. Okay, so I went to this um, conference. With, it was at the Vineyard. It was Bill Hybels' conference uh, from Willow Creek, and there was uh, these videos. And in one of them... Bill Hybels does a session and he's talking about his youth and he's talking about what happened to him when he was young. And um, he, he, uh, he said this, he said that one day he did some skiing and uh, he managed to ski a little bit. He'd learned to ski a little bit, cross the road and down the road a bit. And then his dad came home and he told his dad, 
Well, that Friday, school ended. He comes out of school. There's Dad waiting for him. Takes him in the car to Chicago Station. Gives him a ticket for the sleeper to Aspen, Colorado. And a ticket for the ski lift. A pass for the ski skiing. And a hotel booking. And he gives him these three things. Puts him on the train. And he says, go son, go down that hill. And then come back. And he says to his dad, Ooh, how do I know where to get off the train? I, I don't know how to go. How do I get off the train? I don't know where to go and where to... What happens when I get there? How do I get to the hotel? And his dad said to him, Son, work it out, but don't call me. Work it out, but don't call me. He was 11 years old. Outrageous parenting. (laughs) Completely off-the-wall parenting. And Bill said that after that event, which he talked about how it it worked out and so on, after that event, his dad would do do this frequently. And they went around the world for some reason. He said, for wherever they were in the world, his dad would produce this challenge. Go do this, son. Work it out for yourself, but don't call me. This was his training to make his son resourceful, successful, the all-American boy. Oh dear. God doesn't parent us like that. Praise God, he doesn't treat us like that because when he wants you to be resourceful he tells you his plan and gives you his power and says walk with me oh god all of us in this room All of us have a plan in God's hands for our lives. And he says, call me. I give you the resources you need. Call me. Moses said to the Lord, If we're to go up there, don't send us that way unless you come with us. Bill Hybel's dad would have said, you wimp. But God said, I'm so pleased that you asked me that. I will go with you. This is the wonder of Christianity, that we are in this grace. This is our life. A relationship of walking with the Spirit. He's our guide, as it said in 5.18. He's our companion, as it says in 5.25.
And this is my quote from Longnecker. Those whose lives are caught up in this sphere embody the triumph of God in their transformed patterns of life. Okay? Jonathan, will you just come out here a minute? It's a good lad. Interpreted my tongue, so I feel very warm towards him at the moment. Um, so, here is a Christian man, right? And he's therefore caught up in this sphere. He embodies, embody, you know, in, what's it say? <laughs> he, I've got to get it absolutely right. He embodies the triumph of God. Look at him. He's embodying the triumph of God. <laughs> it's so exciting. It's so thrilling. This man embodies the triumph of God. What does that mean? It means that God's victory in Jesus on the cross of Jesus Christ has liberated him into the freedom of living with Christ through the Holy Spirit. He embodies it. When he wanders around the place, as he's prone to do, he embodies the victory of God. Thank you. He embodies the victory of God in what? In their transformed patterns of life. He's so good, Longnecker. He is so good. You and I, who are born again to a new and living way, embody the triumph of God in Jesus Christ. That is an amazing truth. And that we do that through our transformed patterns of life. The old is gone. The new has come. Stand, therefore, And as he says in Ephesians, having done all, stand. Lord, we thank you for the grace of God poured into our lives. Thank you for this amazing doctrine that liberates us and sets us free. Amen. Oh, yes. Thank you. There's a video to watch, which backs this up. It's something that uh, we've picked up from our son Paul, and uh, he went to Israel <clears throat> uh, with his pastor, and they, they did some filming and some talking, and this is one of the results. So we'll just watch that as it backs up what I've just been saying. <laughs> 